Episode 261, Six Essential Steps to Get Population Health Right. Today, I speak with Fred Goldstein, president and founder of Accountable Health, LLC. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Fred Goldstein. Fred knows a lot about population health. His credentials, in fact, are about as long as my arm. So I'm just going to call him president and founder of Accountable Health, LLC, and also co-founder and lead co-host at Pop Health Week, a podcast you should check out. Today, Fred and I get into not just what good looks like when it comes to population health, but also the six steps to achieve it. If you are looking to deploy some population health, or if you are currently engaged in pop health and are looking to evaluate or benchmark what was done and how it was done, then yeah, you might find this conversation helpful. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Fred Goldstein, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me run something by you, Fred. Mm -hmm. There's this whole controversy between, well, if population health means treating the average patient, not the patient that's sitting in front of you, and it's the opposite of precision medicine. This is my my thought. What population health can do is, it's like the 80-20 rule. You know, obviously there's going to be individual differences, but there's certain things that every human has in common and certain needs that everybody sort of has. And if you use a population health framework and you get someone 80% there with less effort, then you can focus on the 20% that that individual needs. Am I on to something there? It's really a little bit different. And obviously you hit on a great point, which is this whole population health precision medicine argument. And that as we become more and more precise, we don't need population health. But population health in its practice, in the management of it, moves the health of populations one person at a time. So, for example, what precision medicine does is it gives us an incredible ability to understand precisely what we need for that individual. As we begin to incorporate genomics or proteomics or behavioral, better understanding of their behavior or their social determinants. And so we can say, you know, for Fred Goldstein to change his health, we need to do A, B, C, D, E because we have this incredibly precise amount of information. That is actually a piece of population health. That's an assessment. So what precision medicine allows us to do in population health is to get an even more precise and better intervention to know exactly what we need to do while at the still same time still focusing on the population. At the end of the day, we could improve Fred's health because we focused a lot on it. But if we didn't focus on the rest of the people in our practice or on our population, every one of them would get worse. So if we don't focus on the whole population and just focus on individuals, we'll miss the boat. We need to do both. I'm understanding based on what you're saying, population health is basically delivering precision medicine to an entire population. It will be, yes, because if you think about the framework is I think we're going to get into a little bit of how you do population health. And first, it's built on data. The idea is we need to first know who our population is. So it could be everyone, as I said, in a practice, or it could be the community, or it could be all people with diabetes or cancer. And we take that group and we then assess them. We assess them using all kinds of tools. It could be health risks assessments. It could be where do they live, their zip codes, their understanding and knowledge, health literacy, their behavior. And part of that assessment is now becoming these precision medicine tools. So we can say, 
yes, Fred Goldstein has, let's say, depression. And by the way, we now have these new genomic markers we can use to know which medication will work better for Fred. It's a more precise. So now we're going to say, well, instead of just intervening, we know we need to put Fred on an antidepressant. We're going to put him on antidepressant XYZ because genetically that's the right drug. Yeah, and I think we might sort of be saying the same thing, but kind of coming at mm-hmm. it from from a different way. The, the idea that what you're trying to do is after you've determined what someone needs, have kind of, I don't want to say templates, but maybe I do. Because if you don't have, if you don't standardize anything, then you can't scale it. Like you can't do it efficiently if every single time you've got a patient with three markers, you're figuring out individually like what to do with them. Yeah, I think you're right on target. And in fact, this whole idea of standardization is one, obviously, for scalability, but two, because we see so much variation in healthcare today. And we know that the cause of many of our poorer outcomes is this variation or the cause of some of our higher costs is this variation we see in care when we know there are certain approaches, procedures, treatments, et cetera that result in better outcomes, higher quality care, but they're not being used or implemented throughout the system appropriately. Got it. Okay, so back to the framework, which we've sort of Mm -hmm. (laughs) found our way into already. Mm -hmm. As you had mentioned, there's a, a population health framework that you use. We already talked about the first step. Is there anything that you want to add about the first step assessment? Just stepping back, the first is just to identify, obviously, your population. These are the people we're working with. And then you that, that first critical step after that is assess them and determine what they are. And those assessments are becoming much better. We used to do a simple assessment, for example. I believe it might have been the Institute of Medicine or one who said, okay, if somebody's been hospitalized one or more times in the past 12 months or had two or more ER visits, we're going to put them into a high-risk bucket. We've now gotten much more sophisticated about how we assess individuals and we use additional tools and we may use depression screenings and we may use machine learning and predictive analytics to come up with it based on a whole realm of data points to determine their assessment. So we're seeing a lot of really unique and interesting work going on in that space around assessments. And I'm assuming that the goal of assessment is to stratify, which I believe is the next step, the population. Like that's what good looks like. It's an effort to get individuals into certain either risk strata or to identify which patients would be appropriate for which interventions. Like what does good look like relative to assessment? That's exactly right. And you make a great point too, which is what does good look like? We could get really crazy and deep into assessments, but the question becomes how deep do you need to get to create appropriate outcomes? So good looks like being able to appropriately stratify individuals so that at the end of the day, you have interventions or approaches or treatments that will positively impact those individuals. Potentially not so good is well, we're going to go ahead and screen everybody and assess them genetically. Well, there are certain genes we know that have some basis to be able to impact what happens to that individual, but there are a whole bunch of them that if we know they are at risk for ABC, we may not have an intervention for them. So you could overassess a population and create knowledge or understanding about that population that you have no ability to impact that particular issue. And that's where I think you can go a little bit down the wrong path with an assessment process. 
that may create undue stress in an individual if you tell them, hey, you're at risk for A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And by the way, we can't do anything about it. It kind of reminds me of, I had interviewed Dr. Ethan Bosch, who did a whole patient-reported outcome oncology study. And one of the things that they stopped asking patients was, are you tired? oncology patients because everybody's tired and there's nothing you can do about it. So they realized that by, you know, you could wind up with a survey that's 175 questions long that takes everyone hours to complete. But if there's only eight questions that are really meaningful because they're the only ones that have an actionable pathway, then you really should only ask people eight questions. It sounds like you're sort of saying the same thing. That's exactly right. It's And you said actionable, impactful, impactable, whatever the term is, that you have the ability to impact that particular area you're assessing for or that particular risk factor, et cetera, that you're going after. You just can't give people a four-hour survey. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> These days, I'm surprised at how often I'm surprised. <laughs> and your example about, you know, hey, they're all tired, you know, so so what you do is you recognize that, well, you're right, we don't need to ask that question anymore. Maybe at some point we do have some ability to say, well, here are some things we can do, and I don't know if tiredness is the right one or not, but here are some things we could do around that issue to help you to live with that or solve that problem, et cetera. All right, so are we ready to move to the next step in the framework? Sure. Let's talk about Stratify. So the whole purpose of Stratify individuals is to identify who are those that are at high risk. And that can be very different from those who are at high cost as we can get to. But it's really a way to say, I don't have unlimited resources. If I go ahead and I take a, a for example, somebody who's really well managing their diabetes, it probably makes no sense for me and does make no sense for me to call them every week. They're doing a good job. Let me just keep up with them to make sure that they don't move into a moderate or high-risk category, but they maintain that status. What I'm understanding is the purpose of stratification, exactly like you said, is obviously we've got limited resources. The sky is not the limit. So we have to figure out how we can allocate or apply those resources in order to get maximum returns, you know, like maximum value out of the, the resources that we are deploying. What are ways that you're stratifying people these days? I mean, is it pretty much based on their disease burden or, you know, do social determinants come into play here? Originally, simple stratifications were on basic utilization issues or cost. And there are problems with some of those stratifications. So so you're now seeing the inclusion of more and more detailed stratification methodologies that do, do bring in social determinants of health. So you know that this person is living in an area that is a food desert. We know we need to then solve for some food issues or their lower socioeconomic group, and we need to solve for transportation issues. As we begin to recognize the huge impact that social determinants of health or the social influencers of health have on an individual and their life, those are now being brought into the assessment. So then we can use that to then create further interventions to try and improve their health. What do you think, what's the Vanguard doing? You know, like what's a pioneer in engagement doing right now that you think has promise? Obviously the use of behavioral economics has helped. And so if you just run a general program out there, you might get 25%. You start bringing in some incentives, hey, do X, Y, Z, you'll get 40%. You've seen things where there are premium differentials, which are obviously debatable, but you'll see 80-90% as you in some of those higher rate programs. But it's it's really about changing the culture. And the question becomes, how do you do that? At the end of the day, I think this is the best ones are going to be built up based on 
the individual, their family, their friends and neighbors, and their community. And if you can create sort of this virus through that group that, hey, let's all go out and do a walk. Let's watch what we're putting on the barbecue for July 4th because it's going to impact us. So then the question becomes, how do you reward individuals for improving their health? Right now, the majority of the reward to individuals goes to the payer or the provider, because if you get healthier, yeah, I'm healthier. That's great. But the savings or the monetary influence has always been impacted at the provider or payer level when somebody does that. Yeah, I've heard it said that you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right. And there's that whole thing, as you've as has been shown sometimes, I think the studies were in obesity, where if, if somebody is obese, then the friend of their friend is 40 percent likely to be obese. So the question is, could you go in and help one person lose weight and then see that kind of influence throughout the network. So there's some work around that too. I think there's a lot of tools, you know, you're seeing these apps, gamification of stuff and things like that, that clearly have an impact. We're still not there. We haven't found the holy grail yet of engagement, but we're getting better at it. All right. So moving on, the intervene phase of your population health framework. So the next phase and intervention, this is where you're beginning to say, okay, what do we, what do we now do? So for example, you've seen intervention using coaches or nurses or care coordinators or educators. And so you have this whole realm of interventions that range from, I'm going to do phone calls, I'm going to text message, I'm going to use the new technologies, I'm going to video conference, I'm going to get referrals set up. And you're essentially trying to solve all of the issues you found in that assessment and stratification. You now have the individual engaged, they're working with you. So we're gonna make sure that they get their flu shot. We're going to go ahead and see how well they're doing managing their blood sugars and help and provide the resources to do that, whether that's really precise around making sure they fill prescriptions and take their meds on time, to broader issues around health, well-being, access to care, et cetera. So you begin to solve those problems with your interventions. Well, let me ask you a question about these interventions, just in practice here. I get very practical, Mm -hmm. Fred. Say we are using the example, a patient with diabetes who didn't get a foot exam, or you just mentioned flu shots. What's the most successful way to go about this? Is it to, you know, you've got a case manager or you've got a nurse or, you know, any clinician and they just get a notice that pops up on the screen based on the stratification that this patient is at risk because they didn't get their foot examined or they didn't get a flu shot and then let the individual kind of take it from there. Like, you know, you just kind of point out here's the problem and then it becomes up to the individual clinician to figure out how to solve for that. Or do you find that the most effective population programs have a way, a very defined methodology, if you will, to help, you know, in in some kind of proven way to actually get the person to do the thing. To do the yeah. thing. So that's a great question. And it really depends on the individual themselves, the patient. So for example, one of the things we did early on, which is not is not an intervention, was actually to get the assessment done. How could we get an individual on Medicaid to say, yes, I'm going to agree to do this assessment that took about an hour. And we found in that case that $10 Walmart cards were amazing and had the approval from states to use $10 Walmart cards or gift cards that were given. And you now see Medicare allowing some of these things to help get it done. Or, for example, get your flu shot and you see it at Publix, you know, and you get a $10 card. So clearly there's that. I think you have to structure it so that there are some straightforward things that 
everybody does, while at the same time giving the clinician, let's say it's a nurse or, or a health coach who's been trained in motivational interviewing and maybe Prochaska's behavioral change, trans theoretical behavior change model, or they're using the patient activation measures, give them enough leeway that they can say, well, you know, that's not quite going to work for Fred. Let me do this other thing. So there's structure in there, but people are different. And some people respond to certain things and others will respond to something else. So you have to provide a little bit of flexibility in those kinds of programs while at the same time saying, well, yeah, we know for this to scale this, we have to have standards. We have to say we're going to ping these individuals who accepted text messages with a flu shot reminder and others we're going to call them. It gets also to that whole issue of precision medicine and personalization. Can we personalize the interventions to create the behavior change or improve the health that we're looking for? All right, I've noticed something, Fred. Yeah. When I say the names of the steps in the framework, I'm using verbs and you're using nouns. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about our deep-seated psychology. <laughs> so the, la the last step here is I'm going to go with measure. <laughs> Here we go. And you're going to say measurement, right? I'm going to talk about measure. Oh. <laughs> we need to measure the results of the program, and that requires some form of measurement, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so at the end of the day, we have to say, did we improve the health? Did we create the value or the outcomes we're looking for? And take that data and say, you know, the whole population came across at this health status. And by the way, at the end of this year, we had fewer people living with diabetes who were at high risk. We moved the population to a healthier status or we didn't. And those measurements that are used in that step are fed back into the system to make adjustments. These interventions worked. These didn't. We missed following this group close enough. We did a good job with these. Boy, we provided maybe too many resources as other group because they got healthy on their own. And those are the kinds of things you use that step for. That begs a, a gigantic, or maybe just say opens up Pandora's box. Because one of the things that has been just discussed and discussed is, you know, what is quality? How do we measure quality? Which leads us into what is value? What are your thoughts there? Like, is it possible today or what do we need to do today to effectively determine whether we have, in fact, produced outcomes that matter to patients? That's that's really two great questions, because the first one is, have we produced outcomes that are good? And when you compare the U.S. to the health status of other developed countries, we don't look so good. The second piece you added, which is fascinating, is outcomes that are important to patients. And those outcomes can be very different than the outcomes that we measure. So how many people are measuring, I'd like to spend more time with my grandson and be able to play Frisbee in the backyard versus, wow, their hemoglobin A1C looks pretty good. Their blood pressure looks pretty good. It really raises two issues. And we're moving down that road, as you, as you mentioned earlier, with these patient-reported outcomes beginning to bring patients more into this equation and saying, you're part of the system. What is it you want to see out of this? How do you want your life? We can measure blood pressure all the time. And somebody can say, well, I really don't notice the impact of my high blood pressure on me when I'm living day to day. But these other issues are bothering me, this pain in my knee or whatever. In your travels, what do you think is promising there? You know, like, is somebody doing something or is there a school of thought that's starting to develop 
in population health where there's different types of measurement which are being applied that you feel like are the future? I think the patient-reported outcomes are, are clearly coming into the realm. And what's also being recognized is we also need patients to begin to improve, to help them understand and improve health literacy, whether that means we make it easier for them to understand the information or their health literacy improves so they can understand it. To be able to recognize the importance of high quality care. They often rate, patients rate their physicians on wait times and were they nice to me? And those are all important measures, but they they may or may not be relevant from a clinical perspective. Sometimes clearly, obviously, if you're not happy with your physician, you're less likely to follow through with um, what they've recommended you do, et cetera. But it's a merging of those worlds, I think, that's going to be important to be able to say, yes, we need to meet all of their sort of, and I'll use the term retail here, although that's not quite right, Re- these retail measures, these things that around qual- satisfaction, et cetera. At the same time, we need the the individuals to understand that this procedure was done appropriately, was a high quality procedure, and these measures are important too. And by the way, we've achieved these measures to bring the two worlds together a bit. So that will be interesting to watch over time, how we how we bring these together. I think patient-reported outcomes is going to be a huge factor coming up, and you're seeing it integrated more and more into quality measures, into value-based payment measures, and there's been a lot of work on using them over in the, at the NHS in, in the UK. That's really interesting, the idea of teaching patients what quality care is, because you're absolutely right. Like when I was interviewing Marty McCary, he was saying, that people were evaluating John Hopkins, which is best in the world at pancreatic oncology surgery based on the parking lot. It's a two-way street. We need to get better at both. We talked a little bit about technology, AI, for at least the stratification step. Is there a technology that you've seen that you're you find interesting that can help kind of manage each step? Because, I mean, obviously, all of this is built on data. You know, like you're collecting all that information from the assessment stage, and then you've probably got to fold in claims data. You've got to fold in EHR data, and you've got to create some data lake somewhere in order to do pop health well, right? So then you'd think that there you'd need to have some sort of overarching umbrella technology so that everybody had access to the right data at the right time. How are you seeing that go down? Yes, yeah, so there are a lot of companies in that space that claim to have population health management platforms. And they are aggregating these data sets and then running different types of analytics. And some are running some very advanced analytics against it to be able to say, we can predict who your high utilizers will be next year or which individuals will respond to various approaches. I think you're going to see a lot of really unique things come out of these larger data sets and the use of the newer AI machine learning technologies to be able to help stratify, engage, and intervene with the right approaches. What is your advice? Let's just talk about payers. And and by payer, maybe I mean employer, maybe I mean insurance carrier. How do I know if I'm doing pop health well? You know, like, how do I assess maybe my own performance? Because the providers might be saying, yeah, we're doing a great job, but how do I know? So I think today there are a couple things that people need to look at. And honestly... I don't think we're doing a great job. The proof in the pudding is our costs continue to rise. Our overall health status has not gotten better. So at the end of the day, those are the things to look at. Did we, not just for the diabetes people that we managed, 
But for the whole population of people that we had, let's say it's an employer and they have 150 people with, that have type 2 diabetes living with that disease. And you say, well, my program came in and they managed 50 of them and those 50 looked great. What about the other 100? That's why it's so important to look at the whole population. Or a benefits broker says, you know, we came in and, and we did your health insurance program. Yeah, we did a good job. You only went up 8%. We know there's so much excess in healthcare, we should be going down. And so I think those are the basic measures we need to begin to look at. Were they able to provide higher value at lower cost? Did we get better outcomes by spending the same or less? And I think fundamentally we miss that. And that's been one of the problems that we haven't looked at that and said, you know, we're going the wrong way. Although you hear it now, a lot of employers are talking about it. I think the government's beginning to talk about it. Clearly, Sophisticated provider groups understand that. I think a, a fascinating comment was one of the hospitals a couple of years ago, I believe, had an ad that said, if my hospital's full, I failed. That's a completely different thinking approach than build more beds. We need to do more of this stuff. Well, it's also a completely different approach than let's add another quality measure that's a proxy for better patient outcomes, like you just said, A1C or blood pressure. So it sounds mm -hmm. like what you're advocating is to start to try to think about measuring quality relative to what a literate patient thinks quality is. Clearly, as you dive down into it, and let's say you're doing a specific disease state or condition, there are standard quality measures for those. And we do that. But on a broader macro level, we should be looking at, I think, did the overall health of the population improve? And did we see the same or lower cost? If, you know, 25 to 50 percent, depending on who you talk to, of healthcare is unnecessary waste, fraud, abuse. How do we get that out? Well, I think we can get it out through population health if done right in a value-based context. Okay. What's your advice? So say I'm a payer that's listening to this. You know, I'm an executive at, at an employer or at an insurance carrier or even at, at a provider. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, I'm not exactly seeing us maybe apply the framework or do certain steps well, but this is kind of overwhelming. What's your advice, Fred? Like, what would be a first step that someone should take? Is it, you know, like hire consultants or <laughs> what do I do? The first step is choose an area to focus on, whether that's a disease state, a population, and it's going to be different. So there are some problems that payers have structurally in a fully insured market, and that is the medical loss ratio. So payers are required to spend 80 or 85 percent of their premium on these medically approved areas that goes into what's called your medical loss ratio, leaving them with 15 or 20% to cover admin, overhead, marketing, and profits. If they were to go out, let's say, and suddenly contract hospitals for 10% less, and let's say the hospitals represented 30% of their costs, that would be a 3% reduction. They don't keep that or get a benefit. They actually refund that. And so next year, they probably have to lower their premiums and get 15 or 20% of a smaller number. So there's a structural and fundamental problem with the Affordable Care Act in terms of implementing value-based care and population health programs. And I think that's why you're seeing this move towards providers setting up direct contracting. And as a provider, or I would say, pick an area, don't necessarily consider it a pilot, start it. But as you consider it, make sure it's scalable at the start. And that's what Esther Dyson always talks about. Get rid of pilots, build something scalable. I think she said pilots are like crack cocaine. 
And so I agree, she's 100% on target with that. Build a program that you know you can scale for all your people with diabetes or for your clinic or for your individuals who have behavioral and mental health issues or for your employer group. And then really say at the end of the year or the end of the measurement period, did I see the impact? And if I didn't, what am I going to do different next year? It's your thinking that because of the MLR, the medical loss ratio stipulations, that probably the most apt purveyor of pop health is going to be within the provider community as opposed to payers trying to do it themselves. Absolutely. And I think you're seeing that already. So what you've seen is United split out and created Optum. And Optum's growing like crazy. And Optum is now the largest employer of physicians in the country. You have Florida Blue splitting their company and separating their insurance arm from Guidewell and Guidewell Connect, their IT company, their company that owns practices and ERs, et cetera. You're seeing Humana forming Conviva, which is their globally capitated primary care network. And so they've become payviders. The proof is that Humana, I think it was the senior vice president of innovation, I believe is her title, said maybe a month and a half, two months ago, in five years, we'll be a small insurance company because they're going to be a provider. It's got to move to direct contracting. We take out that middle insurance layer and the providers take the risk. And when they take the risk, population health and value-based care and creating quality are going to be the measures that are important for them to be successful. Thanks for nailing the trend, which is kind of what you do, Fred. So why don't you talk a little bit about your consulting practice and where people can go for more information if they're interested. Thanks. So I practice across the spectrum. I've worked for startups to major healthcare systems, from 30-day readmit programs to building health apps. I help companies with problems or with programs. How do you then take those programs to market? What is going to work? If you're doing, I've had uh, brokers call me and say, hey, they're running this chronic disease management program that claims it saved a million dollars for their employees. We're not sure. So I'll take a look at that data and say, you're right, but here's what you should do. Here's how to fix that. And so I sort of help people fix stuff. That's that's what I like to do the most. And where can people go for more information? They can go to, the, the best place to probably is, is probably at my blog, accountablehealth.wordpress.com. And I've got some information on my consulting practice there. Some of my blog posts are up there, obviously links to uh, podcasts, et cetera. And some of the list of clients are there as well. And they can contact me through that or my email as well at fgoldstein at accountablehealthllc.com. Fred Goldstein, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.